I'm your host, Adam P. Kennedy. Welcome to America's Place in the World, featuring retired four-star United States Marine Corps General and former U.S. Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, Tony Zinni. We're looking at the world and America's place in it. On this show, we're discussing why we fight. It's coming up right now. Why we fight. So I'm curious, because you've been at different levels, how does one come to instill, if you're Hitler, to instill fear in everyone around you? How do you have capable generals who totally succumb to this particular man? How does that happen? I think it happens in a couple of ways. One, I think the military becomes very insular and doesn't look out at politically what's happening. And so the military is just a military. It's the old German, you know, we just follow orders. It's a cultural thing. You know, it's a, it's a Prussian thing. And so you follow the orders. And because they're so insular, they don't think of themselves maybe as German citizens as much as they think of themselves as German officers, you know, duty bound to, uh, to execute the orders they're given. And I think that mentality could be dangerous. I mean, that's the value of the citizen soldier as opposed to just a soldier mm-hmm. in an isolated warrior class, which I think they had. So I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is uh, the early successes that, that they had could have fooled many of them to think we can win this. I don't think until they really started seeing the defeats on the Eastern Front that that really dawned on them, you're not going to win this. I don't think like the, like Yamamoto in Japan understood once the U.S. got in, it was over. Yamamoto understood that right away. Now, he was not in favor of attacking America at Pearl Harbor. And once he realized we didn't get the carriers, which means we were going to immediately come back, he knew it was over. You know, he awakened the sleeping tiger. I mean, it's, that's what he said. I don't think there was a, a senior German officer on the other side that really understood that as well as maybe Yamamoto understood that in Japan. But yet, but you got to look around Yamamoto. They all believe like the Germans, we can win this thing. You know, looking back in 2020 hindsight, you can see it was impossible because they just, neither of them could sustain the kind of war they would need against our ability to sustain. We could not only sustain ourselves, we could sustain our allies too. And if you, really dig down deeply, the reason the war was won or lost, depending on how you're looking at it, is because we had an unmatched industrial capability that once it was tooled up to totally be dedicated to the war, which is what FDR did. Those assembly lines in Detroit were making tanks and military trucks and stopped making cars. You know, nobody used rubber anymore. It was all going to the military. No, no more nylons for the ladies. Rosie the Riveter, women became now into the workforce to pick up for men that were committed. I mean, this was a total commitment of not just military power, but the sinews you need for military power, which is industrial power. And when you look at Japanese industrial power and German industrial power, no way that it's going to match in the long run the United States. And the German great operational and tactical superiority, and we saw that in the beginning in North Africa, a place like Kasserine Pass, was soon overcome. And then as the war goes on, units get better. As the fighting goes on, officers get better. So people that, when you look at the Pattons and the Bradleys and the Eisenhowers, who 
already have been picked out by Marshall as superior officers, as they're getting grounded into the nature of this fighting, they're getting better, too. Where does the, the value of fear come into play? Like, you know, the, obviously the Germans, the Nazis developed the Gestapo. The idea that you're ruling through fear, how long can you do that for? I don't think you could do it forever. But where the breaking point is to where that doesn't work anymore probably depends on the society you're involved with. If it is a society that's easily controlled, if it's a society that's never experienced freedom or democracy or independence, if it's a society that isn't wanting in a great, in the basic needs, you can probably get away with it longer. I look at the Middle East, look at the country, take a country like uh, Egypt with a big population. And it's not necessarily that their governments have led through fear. I mean, obviously, they're authoritarian governments they've had. But the people's lot doesn't get any better. They go into the streets. Now, you can go over and look at a, like the Gulf states, the very rich Gulf states. They have a lot of money and small populations. you got emirs and kings leading them. But the people you know, have good life. You know, I mean, you don't want for anything. As long as the oil's pumping you, your life is good. The incentive to go into the streets and turn everything over, you know, isn't there. So, I mean, it's a form of authoritarianism. We believe in the United States, there, there's this driving need for freedom and self-determination that will override everything. No, not necessarily. So when we had our own revolution here, there were a lot of people in the colonies that didn't want to break from the from the king. I mean, life wasn't that bad. It basically was not a revolution of the farmers, it was a revolution of the elites. I mean, the, uh, the Washingtons and Jeffersons and Madisons were big plantation owners and, you know, and they didn't like uh, the taxing and everything else. They, they were the ones that revolted. You have to look at fear in a couple of different ways. It could be overwhelming fear which eventually you can't sustain. You might if you're in an isolated place. And this is the Khmer Rouge and, uh, that were brutal. I mean, they just slaughtered millions of people. And eventually they couldn't sustain that. And that was the most horrific form of fear you could probably imagine. Uh, probably not since uh, Genghis Khan or Attila uh, the Hun or whatever. And there's some fear from authoritarian governments, but it may be more imposed more subtly, you know, through secret police and things that are done and arrests and all that. But again, it's where does the population, where do their needs end up coming to the point where they won't accept it anymore or they won't give into it anymore? Uh, and obviously, Maslow tells you that more of the needs are met, then you get to more of the esoteric kinds of things like uh, a voice in government and all that. But that's after you've met your needs for food, water, safety or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, the short answer is you can't lead through fear alone forever. I mean, it's not going to work. Eventually, uh, people just won't accept it anymore if, if their lives are, you know, you're going to have the Spartacus slave revolt. So in retrospect, where does sort of Himmler fit into all of this in the sense that, in essence, he creates his own fiefdom, right? I mean, he's got... Well, he's the master. Himmler was the ultra-ruthless Gestapo guy, turning family members against each other, creating a secret police, a Gestapo that was in every aspect of society, looking for people to uh, that might even remotely be... I mean, Saddam did the same thing with the Mukhabarat, the secret police that he had. If you were even suspected, I mean, even in the vaguest form of way, 
boom, you were eliminated. There was no tolerance. But, you know, it's also matched in the German case with the guys like Goebbels because he was the master propagandist. So, you know, to turn in your neighbor, you got to become this big believer in this thing. You know, this, this cause, I mean, uh, it, it's so great. I, I would turn in my neighbor if I even suspected something was going on because, you know, there's some great glory. I've been propagandized at a point to, to believe it, and I lose my, my sense of civility and, you know, common sense mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Well, how do you think, because it, it, at some point, so at the SS, they're forming their own army, they're getting the best of everything versus the Wehrmacht. How do you think Hitler, I guess evidently he thought it was a good idea, but I mean, why? Well, you know, almost every dictator has to have a Praetorian Guard. You know, I mean, the Romans had to have a Praetorian Guard because... They didn't know when the legions might march against them. And, you know, they made rules about not bringing your legion into Rome. But Caesar <laughs> got rid of that idea pretty quickly. You have the special Republican guard in in Saddam's case. Uh, and even some of the countries out there now, like Saudi Arabia, has the National Guard, which is really the royal family's uh, guards, separate from the regular military. In all these cases, authoritarian leaders tend to have surround themselves with ultra loyal inner ring security that's uh, but but what's interesting is oftentimes that turns against them i mean a lot of emperors in rome went out because the praetorian guard took them out you know yeah, yeah starting with i guess caligula was the first one and then nero when we when we speak about world war Two. The emphasis is always on, seems to be always on Hitler. What's your assessment of Stalin and, you know, what he did during the war and prior to the war? Well, I think Stalin positioned himself really well. He took out his opposition, you know, Trotsky and everybody else. He eliminated his political rivals and and got himself close to uh, Lenin and then took over as Lenin's successor and understood the need for ruthlessness to eliminate any competition at the political level. And then at the military level, some of the purges he had eliminated some of the best officers they had. There's one report that somebody said to him, what happened to all those great officers we had? And Stalin said, we killed them. You know, I mean, uh, there were these horrendous purges. Frunzi, who they named their military academy after, was one of the greatest guys, uh, the greatest military leaders in the world. and. Uh, Stalin told him he needed an operation. And he said, no, I don't think I need an operation. I said, no, you need an operation. We take care of getting well. He never came out of the, were, never came out of the operating room. You know? but, so, you know, he, he understood the, I mean, I, he stayed in power by eliminating the competition, you know, at, at that level. Of course, Hitler did too early on. Uh, Stalin was maybe even more ruthless. He certainly killed more people than Hitler did. Yeah, I heard that, I read that to up to 20 million people mm-hmm. of his own people. Yeah. Saddam did the same thing on a smaller scale, obviously, and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, throughout history, that's what you see. Uh, uh, people would understand you got to eliminate the competition because eventually it's, it's going, that's one way, you know, you could be, take, you can be, you can lose power. Uh, the other is the revolt of the people, you know, and that's an iffy thing. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. In, in this day and age, uh, it may not necessarily just be, because they overpower you in terms of violence. Like in the case of Egypt and Mubarak, it was just a 
overwhelming number of people that just stopped everything in the country and just couldn't go on. Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mubarak uh, at least understood, don't put the soldiers in the streets, Egyptians killing Egyptians, that's not going to, you know, Gaddafi tried that, didn't work. And how would you view Stalin as a, as a military strategist? Well, I think Stalin was smart enough to not try to be the strategist that Hitler was. I mean, I think he understood, leave the fighting to Zhukov and those, they know what they're doing. I think what was needed maybe from him in strategic terms, he could provide. I mean, I don't think Stalin was like Hitler in terms of being there on the map, on the ground and moving divisions and that sort of thing. He saw himself as uh, providing the political objectives in the, at that level, but not being a, a general, mm -hmm. you know, where Hitler thought he was the ultimate general. It's hard to imagine that uh, I've read that even, you know, when Germany was was uh, amassing on the Soviet border a million men, and they told Stalin that uh, the Germans were amassing, and he, he didn't believe it. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to fathom that today. I mean, one thing you have to give Stalin credit for, he recovered. He knew enough to, he understood what he had. He had the vastness of this great country that didn't have a lot of resources. So if the German army wanted to extend itself into Russia, it was not going to be able to sustain that extension. I mean, the Russian people were, led hard lives and were used to hard lives. So he should have realized from Napoleon that it, it, you can't chase him down. And so I think Stalin realized after the initial contacts with the Germans, don't fight them now. I mean, just draw them in, extend their lines as deep as you can, get them into adverse weather conditions and things like that. Regroup. You have the great protection of the Urals and get behind them. Uh, restructure yourself, then come at them when they're extended. And, you know, the strategy worked. I mean, uh, the Germans uh, didn't understand you know, what was the point of taking all that territory. This was uh, this was Augustus Caesar Augustus. You know when they lost all those legions up in the Tutenberg Forest, and I said, "My legions, my legions!" And, and he's trying to say, "Stop it!" You know, I don't need to take more woods and forests in Germany. I mean, then I, then I require more legions to protect them. It drains the economy. Economy. I mean, if you're going to see every Roman nobleman, in order to make his bones, had to form a legion, pay for it, arm it, go off, get a great victory, come back and have his victory parade uh, down the streets of Rome, and then he was a made man. But the trouble is he added something to the empire that if it didn't bring anything to the empire... You know, like when the, the conquest of Egypt was important because it was the breadbasket of Rome. You know, it produced wheat. It, it had things to offer. But chasing a bunch of Germanic tribes up across the Danube, demarked the Danube, I don't need anything over there. Stay out of that. We're just getting killed and wiped out, and they're bringing stuff to the empire that drains us. Uh, Hadrian's Wall, which now everybody believes was not to keep the, the picks out, but keep the Romans in. Stop. We don't, there's nothing there in Scotland I need, you know, and and so you know I think the conquerors can get into this mentality that more and more is better, not understanding that the more you gain, the more you have to administrate. You know, Julius Caesar understood this because Julius Caesar 
when he conquered somebody, he didn't wipe them out. And if they were willing to uh, submit to Rome, he offered them Roman citizenship and Roman protection and, and then involved in Roman trade and to become an integral part of the empire. Mm-hmm. You know, so when he fought in Gaul and all this is, you know, if you don't betray me, there's going to be an advantage to you in the long run. But, you know, going back to your point about where people may have thought initially the Germans might be relieved from Stalin, they soon realized it wasn't going to be that way. So you might as well go with your ethnic brothers, you know, the Slavs. And there was no way the great Aryan race was going to accept the Slavs as uh, as equals in any way. And, you know, I mean, it was a, a cultural difference that wasn't going to be overcome. So, I mean, you know, it, all, the, all these factors come in. I think the mistake we make sometimes is we go after, try to go after one factor for why things were the way they were or turned out the way they were or one side won or one side lost. But I think it's usually a, a complex set of things that bring this, uh, to turn out the way it does. And sometimes because of the, just the nature of, of war, it's, it can be simple things that lead to a chain of complex events that, you know, it, they couldn't wake up Hitler. It, it, had they had he been awake and he committed the reserves, might have been a different story on Normandy. You know, you, who knows? Uh, but you know, then it gets compounded further uh, down the road because of mistakes early on tend to compound themselves. Then, and you have more complex reasons why things begin to fall apart. You can't recover from mm-hmm. it. I want to get back to that in a second, but since you brought up Julius Caesar, the Battle of Alesia. Mm-hmm. is one of the most amazing... Well, it was brilliant. One of the most amazing things. He was basically surrounded. <laughs> yes. I mean, what, I mean, he thinks he's trapped Vercentorix on the mountain, and of course the, the tribes are coming in behind him. Right. So he creates an actual inner ring, you know, and so he's got him isolated. He's fighting in two directions. They're surrounding him on the outside, and he's this guy's in a fortress in front of him. But he builds an inner ring security with lesser forces defeats Vercentorix, attacks a couple of times on the outside ring and they break apart and go you know? you're a military guy but that's that's got to be one of the most brilliant battles ever I was just uh... well I mean what you got to realize that Caesar is is a very complex guy in terms of the way he handled victory mm-hmm. you know he never stepped all over the if you if you're willing to admit defeat, your people can live in peace, can live as part of the Roman Empire and all the benefits of the Roman Empire. You know, he, he knew how to win over those that he defeated so they wouldn't come back. And he was operationally, obviously, very savvy. I mean, you just described one of his more famous battles. But then he knew the tactical moment where he would actually draw his sword and go you know, down into the ranks of the 10th Legion and show him, uh, put himself at great risk, show himself at a moment of battle. He knew where the moment was. In many ways, Napoleon was like that, too. Napoleon used to talk about everything's about position. So the enemy takes a position, you take a position. How do you assess that enemy's position? He used to talk about the, the hinge. Every formation had a hinge. If you broke the hinge, it came apart. You had to determine where that hinge was, and you had to attack it. And, of course, the ability to to see the hinge, you know, the coup of the eye, as he used to say, and to determine it, and then know when to attack it and how to attack it. Obviously, that held him in good stead for a long time. At Waterloo, he missed some great opportunities. His timing was off. You know, he, he had moments when he could have won, and 
and, and didn't seize the moment or didn't see it coming about in the way he thought. And of course, you know, obviously Wellington saw the opportunities that Napoleon didn't. So, I mean, do you think in terms of how Caesar then, you know, when he came back, he, he crossed the Rubicon, he took Rome, his battles with Pompey. Where do you see the downfall? What, what happened, do you think? Do you think if he hadn't been assassinated, he would have continued on? I mean, what, what do you sort of see his situation as? I think had, had he not been assassinated, you would have seen him launch a campaign against the Persians. Because that's what he's getting ready to do. Okay. It's an interesting fight. He would have expanded the empire in in uh, East Asia, you know, more like what Alexander did, which I think it would have been much more profitable for Rome as opposed to running up in the forests and everywhere in the north. You would have had the Roman military machine would have been much more formidable. I mean, subsequent to his assassination, they fought each other to... Right. You know, so it was very destructive in, in many ways. I think he saw the value of, of, of the Near East and you know, because he obviously took Egypt and, and conquered it and understood the value of it. And the greatest threat against the Roman Empire were the, were the Persians and Parthians. Uh, that would have been the, where the big fight would have occurred. That's where he would have taken it. I think his downfall was that, you know, the Roman aristocracy wasn't ready for a single dictator. I mean, he was part of the triumvirate. Yes. That was sort of a first amongst equal. You still sort of had the Senate and power. What they saw in him is somebody's going to take total power. So they weren't going to let that happen. Where does Antony rank? Not as a military leader. I mean, he was a great tactical leader, but you have to understand he fought under Caesar, Julius Caesar. You know, when they, and so all Julius Caesar's victories he was part of. But you have to realize that a lot of that had to do with Caesar, maybe more than him. He was, he was renowned as a, as a great tactical leader. I think when he was off on his own, you know, he, he lost at Actium in the, in the fight against Augustus. Politically, he was not too savvy. He didn't handle that relationship with Augustus very well and allowed himself to get more isolated, didn't understand the importance of Rome, did some dumb things. I mean, the Roman aristocracy turned on him. So, you know, he abandoned his family in Rome and became basically an Egyptian, you know, with Cleopatra. And so that alienated the, the Romans. So put a lot of support for then for Augustus to take him on. Because a lot of the questions that you're asking mix politics with military skill. And sometimes you take somebody like Constantine, who maybe understood all that. So he was a a credible military leader, but he saw the future in the East more than the West, so he split the empire. I think he probably understood political span of control, saw opportunity in in, uh, in Byzantium as maybe greater than in Rome, and maybe saw a bifurcated empire, which would have been much more manageable. Of course, his successors didn't manage it really well in, in the West. Thank you for joining us. Find us on Facebook at General Zinni APW and online at APKCG backslash APW. I'm Adam P. Kennedy, and this is America's Place in the World.